0: I'm Professor Bob Hewish from the Department of International Development Studies at Dalhousie University. You're listening to GDP, the Global Development Primer, the podcast dedicated to all issues in international development studies. Follow me on Twitter at Professor Hewish. This episode of GDP, the Global Development Prime, we very happy to have with us Dr. Valerie Crooks. Now, Dr. Crooks completed her PhD at McMaster University in 2005, and the following year she worked as a postdoctoral fellow at York University, and since 2006, she has been a faculty member in the Department of Geography at Simon Fraser University. Dr. Crooks currently holds the Canada Research Chair in Health Service Geographies, and she also holds a Scholar Award from the Michael Smith Foundation for Health Research. Dr. Crooks is a health geographer by training, and as such, she is interested in the spatial and place-based dimensions of health and healthcare. And she broadly conceives herself as a health services researcher, and she has an ongoing interest in understanding the lived experiences of accessing needed, wanted health and social care services. So today, we are going to talk about one of her main areas of research, which is medical tourism and what medical tourism looks like in a post COVID-19 world. Dr. Valerie Crooks, welcome to GDP.
1: Thank you so much for having me actually as a returning guest. It's a pleasure to be back on this podcast I'm talking to you today.
0: Absolutely, Valid. Thank you so much. Last time we we had the pleasure of doing this in person
1: mm-hmm. uh, on
0: the top of Burnaby Mountain at the excellent podcast studio there at Simon Fraser University. Now there's a there's just a little bit of social distance between us this time, but of course uh, we are more than happy to, to showcase some of your research and teaching interests on this podcast because they're just, they're just so great.
1: Why? Thank you. So
0: well, one of your main areas is about medical tourism, which uh, maybe you can give us a quick definition for in a minute, but the world bank has often praised and encouraged medical tourism as a means to economic diversification and growth, especially in the Caribbean. So you know, patients from North America and some other countries would travel into Caribbean nations for the receipt of healthcare. But then COVID 19 comes in and it grounds aircraft and it closes ports. Two questions What is medical tourism and what is happening to the medical tourism
1: industry? Uh, Thanks so much. So great questions. First off, I always love to have the opportunity to talk about what medical tourism is just to make sure we're not taking for granted what this practice involves. So when we're talking about medical tourism, we're referring to the privately arranged and privately paid for travel abroad for medical care by patients. So we're not talking about care, for example, where um, somebody's home health system might actually... uh, facilitate a referral abroad. So in Canada, we would typically call that out-of-country care. Um, It's sometimes also called cross-border care. So intentionality is really key as well when we're talking about medical tourism. And the reason why I mentioned that is that If we're talking about medical tourism, we're not talking about care for ill or injured vacationers. So if you're on a cruise and you break your leg in Jamaica and you have to go to the hospital there, you're not a medical tourist. You are an ill or injured vacationer receiving care because the care you received was not intentional. I assume you didn't intend to fall off of the the cruise ship ramp and break your leg. I hope not. I I hope not. I hope not as well. Although I have to say, I mean, if you get grounded there and you have to recover, well, I mean, it's a pretty nice place to be. But um, so intentionality is key that um, self-directed out-of-pocket payment, um, also key to understanding what medical tourism is and what it's what it isn't. Uh, Sometimes medical tourism is driven by trade policy. And you've also kind of set that discussion up in the intro when you were talking about um, some World Bank initiatives. There are other larger trade initiatives that are encouraging particular countries or world regions to enhance medical tourism capacity or to consider medical tourism as a direct trade strategy, uh, not just around diversifying the economy, but specifically around diversifying the tourism product. And that's the trade strategy. Strategy typically in the Caribbean region, where there's a goal um, that you see throughout the region taken up by many countries to find ways to diversify their tourism products. So, some in some instances, uh, you see some Caribbean countries that are trying to, for example, get into. Um, concert and conference kinds of diversification of their tourism strategies. Uh, There are also other countries that are looking at sort of uh, more religiously focused diversification of their tourism strategies. And so medical tourism also is another strategy that we see around diversifying the trade sector. And something that's really interesting around this diversification through medical tourism is that although it of course has direct implications for health systems, typically uh, the drive forward around medical tourism is undertaken by um, the trade offices in Caribbean countries, um, as opposed to those that are leading the health sector. And in some cases, I've even had the opportunity to have conversations in some countries where uh, there's actually a feeling that the tourism sector is kind of being left behind in the planning, that trade officials are, are sort of moving this forward so rapidly that those that actually have a stake in the development of the medical tourism sector are sort of being left behind so that was uh, you know a kind of conversation that I had quite often uh, in Belize for example as well as Barbados where um, both health sector and tourism sector representatives felt that they were not there um, in championing the conversation and figuring out the vision for how this sector would unfold. And of course, you know, here I am just rambling. I can talk all day about these things. But what I was just saying about that setup and the division between the trade and the tourism sectors actually links to the second part of the question that you um, set out for me, which is, you know, what is happening to this sector or to the medical tourism industry um, in the Caribbean region in particular, which is so tourism dependent in light of COVID-19? Well, if you have a sector of your economy that is dependent on international patients traveling in, and those people are not able to travel, um, then of course you're going to disrupt the flows that you are hoping to see, and also, of course, the um, not just uh, thriving of, but even the core survival of this particular kind of sector. And so you you would be seeing reporting of underutilization of, especially the private clinics the smaller ones that have actually been purpose built for medical tourists
0: so this is really telling so we've got we've got the pandemic we got the covid-19 pandemic in play here and everything grinds to a halt and the caribbean is you know there's there's many different avenues to tourism there and i'm thinking in particular about the cruise ship industry Yeah, where where there's a you know, there's all sorts of cruise ships around the world, but the ones in the Caribbean tend to tend to attract in North American and European clientele at sort of more discounted prices to to have this hop on hop off adventure through the Caribbean. Mm -hmm. We know full well that with COVID, the cruise ships were were hotspots and all of the countries except for one who was a little bit late to close their doors did close their doors immediately. So there were there were literally uh, cruise ships adrift with mm-hmm. uh, people who had COVID on there. It, it mm-hmm. would seem like that's an opportunity for a medical tourism industry to say, hey, yes, we've got these resources. You're all foreign. You're you're suffering from COVID. We'll come help. Is well, there any reason that didn't happen?
1: You know, you're raising a really um, interesting uh, sort of avenue of discussion here in the points that you're bringing up. And one of the sort of key issues is what does it mean to actually practice on international patients who is licensed to do so? Where do those practices start and stop? And even, for example, in relation to uh, cruise tourism and healthcare that supports that, that is actually typically done on a contractual basis with very particular providers in ports. So, mm-hmm. you know, a hospital or a clinic that is not already rostered by that cruise um provider is not going to be well positioned to just kind of stand up and offer care so it actually adds a lot of complexity and and starts to show you some of the rifts and cracks in how something like medical tourism unfolds so in relation to the cruise cruise sector um you know you're mentioning you know what are the what were the opportunities or what they what could they have been for actually treating uh, patients with COVID-19 who were effectively stranded throughout the Caribbean Sea, for example, um, in the early days of, of COVID, searching for ports. Um, but if you actually uh, take a step back, um, also there's a companion sector of the medical tourism industry that is aligned with the cruise. Uh, sector. And that is um, at many ports uh, throughout the Caribbean. And one that is really prominent that I think of is in Cozumel, Mexico. Now, I do know that many listeners might think, is Mexico the Caribbean? Well, Cozumel Island is, uh, you know, bordered by the Caribbean Sea off of the coast of mainland Mexico. Um, It really is where the Caribbean and Mexico meet together. Um, And the cruise port there has, uh, for example, right off of the ship, a number of small pharmacies, a number of dental offices, and um, also cosmetic clinics that are specifically there catering to cruise passengers. And Mm -hmm. so when you have a sector such as that type of medical tourism that is so tied to the cruise industry, um, you know, with the collapse of that industry through the pandemic, of course, you're starting to see the other ones that are also falling. Um, And so, you know, medical tourism, it's really interesting because it it, it is dependent not just on patients flying in, but also patients sailing in. Um, And the risk is if people are unable to do that, then, of course, you're not able to actually keep that um, economic sector afloat, uh, no pun intended to the cruise industry there. And it's really interesting if I can just add another point here, which is that there's a lot of dialogue around the medical tourism, uh, the practice of medical tourism, and thinking about the public health implications. Uh, so dialogue specific to concern about the potential for medical tourism to actually be involved in um, spreading um You know, infectious disease. So you're going to have people in hospitals abroad. They're going to be returning home. I think many of us now know that hospitals are not places that you want to necessarily spend extensive amounts of time in. And in many ways, they're almost sort of like disease vectors themselves. Um, And so there's been a lot of awareness among public health officials of the fact that you know, the practice of medical tourism um, is a public health concern in patients home countries because the spread of the potential for spread of disease, um, as well as other serious health risks may actually burden health systems at home. And it's very interesting because actually with what we see with the pandemic, it is has actually shown how vulnerable the medical tourism industry is to the spread of disease or in this case uh, to a pandemic level viral spread. Where the industry, of course, can't survive um, in this kind of environment, and it really has shifted and scaled up the dialogue about the risks and opportunities um, that are linked between medical tourism and public health.
0: Yeah, I mean, you're you're covering someone so many important points here, Val. That you know, one of the things I'm thinking about is just sort of the nature that medical tourism has often been sold over the the years that the 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 classic the sun surf and uh, surgery Mm -hmm. uh, logo and the idea is that you know as you come into your Caribbean or your island destination for whatever treatment that you're you're seeking that you'll have a very comfortable uh, hotel waiting for you to recover in the meantime and in many ways that sort of setup sounds like it would actually be really aligned. With, uh, with, with quarantine measures and, uh, you know, les uh, cordons sanitaires and, and this sort of uh, measures that we've seen for COVID-19. I, I talked to some people who have, who have gone to Fiji during the pandemic and they said, oh, quarantine in Fiji is amazing. You, mm-hmm. you show up and you go off to a commercial accommodation and you're there for two weeks. You cannot leave. And it would seem like that would be something that, uh, you know, combined with the fact that, that there are health issues at play here, that there's concern for both prevention of COVID and treatment of it, that this could be, be an opportunity. But like you said, the the organization of this industry did not lend itself well to it. Um, the only country that I can think off the top of my head in the Caribbean that took in cruise ship passengers and offered them full care for COVID was Cuba. There was the the cruise ship called the Bramer, which was a, a British ship that uh, reported that it uh, had serious cases of COVID aboard uh, earlier in, in 2020. And most of the, the ports in the Caribbean just said, nope, not coming in. Uh, Havana set up this, uh, this welcome wagon for the Bramer, which, was a con- which is a, a, an armada of, of, of buses and ambulances that took patients to a, a quarantine facility and then provided care to them. I'm uh, not too sure how the 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 bill for that service worked out in the end but that was a a moment when the borders were open to receive to receive patients in this way. So thinking more to the the design and the intention to medical tourism, uh, is this pandemic showing us the limitations of this concept? I mean, what was what was medical tourism supposed to do if we see that it really wasn't supposed to be there to to treat COVID-19?
1: Yeah, that's a really great question. And, and also in relation to your question, it, it points out something that I talked to about before in terms of what medical tourism is or is not. So if people are traveling abroad um, and acquire a viral infection and require hospital care or some other form of medical care while they are a, a vacationer, um, that's actually really not what we think of as medical tourism. But you're right in pointing out that there are, um, you know, there is capacity to treat international patients as medical tourists, as well as, as ill and injured vacationers um, throughout the Caribbean region. And um, that, that care and, and the way in which it was practiced uh, was really shifted when we saw the onset of COVID-19 and the spread of it On cruise ships, and there were very different responses from different countries. Uh, You know, you are an expert in Cuba more than I am, but Cuba has a particular reputation in the region for medical care and for its extension of medical care globally and internationally, and effectively kind of using that purpose in order to practice, maybe for lack of a better phrase, kind of global health diplomacy or or what other other language that that you would choose to use. And I know you're very familiar with this even more so than I am. Um, And so I can't say that I was surprised that Cuba would have a particular kind of response to um, treating patients on those ships relative to the other um, countries that were um, hosting those ships and not allowing passengers to come um, off of. Off of the ships and onto onto the land, um, but this experience of what we've seen with regard to the cruise ships also really shows how vulnerable uh, small island nations are. Um, like you know, in the, in the Caribbean region, we have some very small island nations with very fragile health systems, and the risk of you know disease transmission, the risk of bringing a viral infection or of anything else that would potentially harm the system in a way that would not be able to be responded to domestically is so great that you had countries making that sort of ethical decision saying it's not in our interest to allow people to come on shore for treatment. The capacity um, and the extent of Cuba's health system relative to the health system in many of the other uh, Caribbean countries that actually had cruise ships at their ports when the ports were closed down is actually quite different. Um mm-hmm. I think you would probably agree. Like it, it it's a very interesting situation, um, and there's a lot of reasons why we, would, we saw such different responses.
0: Right. I mean, in, in Cuba, we you know the way that the the medical system is is structured is that it's very much a centralized system that that allows for uh, regional and community level uh, buy in and, and participation and organization uh, within the provinces and the cities within within Cuba. But it is very much integrated, so that the the process of caring for foreigners is not detached anyway from providing care for for locals. There are some hospital facilities that do uh, specifically take in uh, foreign patients. There's a hospital in Havana that's usually serving the diplomatic corps there, and then there's some hospitals in, near the resorts that uh, that would you know that do offer people a, an invoice for services mm-hmm. to which uh, Cuban patients um, you know would be would, would not be billed in that way but that said the the allocation of resources the training of personnel the planning for disasters the planning for pandemics the acquisition of um, of uh, medical supplies and medicines themselves is all done through essentially one organization where I feel that what we're, we've heard with the medical tourism sector is that you've, you've got the national uh, public systems within these islands that you say some are very small and and frail going alongside a a more private entrepreneurial uh, health system that is catering to, Mm -hmm. to foreign tourists.
1: Mm -hmm. Yep. Just, just to pick up on something you just said uh, in terms of the islands, I, I don't want to give any impression that the, any of the countries are frail. Like I was mentioning, no. that there are some fragile health systems. You know, there are many um, countries within the Caribbean where really the population base is so small that it is not possible to host a full complement of medical specialties, for example. Um, and so it becomes very easy for a health system like that to become overburdened uh, mm-hmm. by the introduction of any new particular kinds of system demand. So they really are um, not all, but there are some very fragile health systems when you're talking about the small island continent. Um, Context. And that's why there is actually a history of regional movements uh, within the Caribbean around patient flows in order to help to address that gap. So the movement of people within the Caribbean between countries um, is something that is quite normal as a way to actually sort of strengthen the capacity of the region as a whole to provide care. So there are various cross-border Um, and out-of-country care arrangements that exist. I just wanted to sort of clarify that. I just did not want it to seem like it was on record with me saying that that Caribbean
0: people
1: were were frail.
0: We didn't assume that at all. No, not a chance. Uh,
1: but yes, uh, what you were mentioning um, absolutely is the case where medical tourism is with 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 some uh, with a few exceptions, one of which you actually mentioned in relation to Cuba, uh, where most of the international patients are, or if not all of them, are actually being treated within the public sector. Um, outside of that, medical tourism is a highly two-tier practice. So, you know, when you have somebody that is traveling from, for example, like Arkansas to Aruba for you know, a specialized procedure, um, they're typically not going to be arriving into care in the public hospital. They will be going to a special uh, clinic, a private clinic, um, a clinic that is looking to make profit and has looked to all kinds of patient markets, including international patients. So it does really reinforce a two-tier type of practice. Um, and so you can also have, because of that two-tier, you can have different levels of resourcing. Um, And this as well enhances that fragility of some of the health systems that you have in the Caribbean region, for example, where there may be a private for profit uh, clinic that is involved in highly specialized types of procedures, really trying to attract medical tourists, able to provide or able to purchase and afford to operate specialized medical equipment that's not available within the public system. And this raises questions about fairness. Um, Is that okay? And also what should the benefits or spillover benefits be for the public system? So should there be any type of regulation that actually says that, well, the public system should be able to use that type of medical equipment. And in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic, which is a little bit what we've been chatting about today. So how do we see this sector as being transformed? I mean, you're going to have underutilized capacity within the Caribbean because you're not going to have as many international patients. And so are there opportunities to see how, um, you know, these facilities can strengthen uh, domestic health systems? Yes. Are those opportunities being met? We'll have to see how things unfold because right now we're so focused on a crisis management perspective globally around this pandemic that those types of localized stories and their lasting implications have yet to be told.
0: right. Those are great points, Val. and the the question that uh, I've got for you to, to sort of wrap uh, wrap up today's podcast is is you know going to be one where we crack out the crystal balls and try to uh, look to the future a little bit. But I'm thinking that the the impacts that that the pandemic has had in the Caribbean, to tourism and medical tourism within it, but also to other areas around the world that were becoming known for medical tourism uh, in Asia as well. There's you know Thailand, uh, okay. India, Singapore uh, were all you know centers of medical tourism uh, even within just the region. Not so much for for Europeans. Coming over, but certainly regional in Australia, New Zealand, um, feeding up into that as well. What does the future hold for medical tourism uh, in the Caribbean or elsewhere after COVID nineteen? Uh, is this something that uh, will get back on track? Is this something that uh, we've seen the, the the fractures in the system present itself uh, to the point where it's not repairable? What do you uh, what do you think is the next step for uh, for medical tourism?
1: Well, that's a great question. And when you asked it, you didn't actually talk about a singular crystal ball, but you actually said crystal balls in plural. And so I'm actually going to riff on that to say that there are actually we have a different, table of
0: crystal balls. There's
1: so many crystal balls in front of me. Um, but I you know I just wanted to riff on that to say that there's no singular vision of the future. And I'll give you some contrast here. So, for example, South Korea has been extensively working to enhance its medical tourism capacity, Um, certainly over the last decade, significant funding from the national government as well as provincial governments um, backing the development of medical tourism, uh, using this to treat international patients specifically or typically in high technology uh, hospital environments as well as in cosmetic procedures. Um, And during this COVID-19 period where borders have really been close to international travel, while one might think, okay, this sector is gonna die down, instead there's been a whole flurry of activity there. You know, a number of international and provincial conferences going on about medical tourism, using international experts who are attending these remotely or virtually um, in order to offer expertise opinions. So, you know, in some ways I have see in the Korean context the the current pandemic has been an opportunity to retool and reset and further enhance and streamline the vision for how things will be unfolding. And then you take it to sort of the other end of the spectrum where you know most of our conversation up to now has really been focused on thinking about medical tourism as a as sort of a formal uh, trade policy and practice. And that's true in many places, but there are also many individual service providers or particular clinics or singular hospitals in countries that have made a, a strategy at the small scale to get into medical tourism. They have done little things they can to enhance their capacity and they would be turned belly up over this particular pandemic, um, especially when they're not backed by a national trade policy or a national trade strategy that may result in um, getting some money in flowing during this gap, uh, where I'm not even sure there's an opportunity to retool and revision as much as there is to figure out Um, If it's possible to overhaul or to actually redirect and serve a local patient. So, you know, again, if there's a table filled with crystal balls, that just shows you two, you know, strategies or two sort of survival mechanisms. One is this like refreshing, retooling, revisioning that I see in South Korea. And the other is, you know, those small scale clinics that are going belly up. And then, you know, a final vision, a final crystal ball. I've just been having a very interesting conversation actually with a a medical tourism facilitation company based in the United States that um, facilitates a lot of care for people into Mexico, where the owner of the company reached out and said, hey, I've never really thought about the harms of this practice. And, you know, what are some of the ways that medical tourism detracts from the health of the population in the destinations? You know, uh. Bob, you can appreciate this. It's one of those moments where I almost wanted to fall off my chair uh, mm. when somebody reaches out and says, "Hey, I've been thinking deeply about these ethical questions." and And one thing I was wondering, and, and you know I've gone back and forth with this facilitator, and we've had a really interesting dialogue. and I, I've sort of wondered, I wonder if if the downturn in patience has allowed some people, to dream not only in the business sector, but in the equity and ethical fronts where they're kind of thinking about how does retooling and and moving my company forward in a post-COVID environment mean that I need to be sort of more aware and how do I translate that awareness into my business? So there you go. There's me grabbing a three crystal balls for you.
0: That is a, uh, that's an impressive juggling act, Val. Thank you so much for, for taking those crystal balls on and for giving us ample amount to think about in terms of what uh, medical tourism is its role during the pandemic and what the future holds with it in terms of economic diversification in the caribbean and in other medical tourism centers so wanted to just thank you very much again for coming back and joining us on gdp and i'm already eager to have you back on for another episode
1: it was my pleasure and i look forward to talking to you again
0: thank you val